Welcome back to Thrive in the Future podcast. This week I was a guest on FarmHop Life podcast as farmhoplife.com. This is an excerpt of the interview. I'll include a link to the entire interview in the show notes. Go and check it out and follow FarmHop Life on Twitter as well as your podcast feeds. If you want to know a little bit more about FarmHop Life, check out Thrive in the Future episode 50 where Matt came on and we talked about his 20 by 23 project next year. He's traveling around to farms and homesteads to lend a hand with whatever the owner needs to finish a project, to plant hundreds of trees, to harvest plants or process livestock. Wait, you're talking about free labor? How's this work? Go check it out over in episode 50. Now let's get into my guest spot on FarmHop Life. So we did that as a community event. That was really good. One of the things that we've really been working on is forming a community of folks, you know, different farms and things like that. So we have a once a month, we have, we call them, no one's an expert, but we're still going to get stuff done. We were in a larger group in, in Kansas City, but we could never get anybody to do anything because they were all, well, well, we need to get an expert to come and show us how to do this. And then we figured out, well, we're not experts, but we're still going to just have a workshop and we're going to figure it out. Like, you know, one guy had done it once we were processing chickens because when you have chickens and they're straight run, you end up with 50 to 60% roosters. Mm-hmm. So pro- we got together and we processed 16 roosters one Saturday and then uh, it's something that you don't feel comfortable with unless you do it often. Yeah. So we just got together, said, hey, one of us has done this before and the rest of us haven't. So we're not an expert, but we're still going to get stuff done. And then we taught each other and processed the chickens and did that. And then we started setting up workshops every month on a specific Saturday, like the second Saturday. And then one of us would volunteer for a topic or a couple topics. This is the Farm Hop Life Podcast, a traveling homestead family. I'm Matt DeRozier. Tonight, my guest is Scott Miller of Thriving the Future Podcast, finding positive solutions to thrive in the tough times ahead. And he lives in Northeast Kansas. Not sure why. How's it going, Scott? <laughs> Good, Matt. Yeah, well, I live here because of work, basically. Do you Are you able to talk about your job what is it that you do uh well i am a it project manager you can hear me kind of reference that on the podcast sometimes but uh what i really like to do is grow trees and mess around with the gardens and stuff like that do you have a favorite tree like a favorite kind of tree that like produces produces well and you you like to harvest it and eat it I don't have any trees that have got to the point where they're harvesting yet because they usually take about five years. Right. So um, my my first year of apple production was this year. And then I have uh, my very, very first chestnut was this year. It was only one nut. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, We're just going to leave that there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of the things that I'm working on is I go down to the local elementary school one of my friends planted chestnuts there many years ago, and then nobody's collecting them. So I just go and get them and then grow them out from seed and tree pots. And that's my latest project is to grow them up and then either plant them around my property or sell the chestnuts so other people can sprout them. 
or I grow them out and then sell the trees. Nice. What zone are you in? The uh, 6A. Okay. I think we're in 5B. So I was curious, like, what the hardiness of uh, those chestnuts are. Yeah, I think they still work in 5A. So I was on your podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago. And mm -hmm. how did you get started into homesteading? Yeah, so I used to live in town. My wife boarded her horse. She had a horse and, and we lived in a townhouse. I worked in downtown Kansas City. One day we're sitting around the lunch table. Across the street is the park where all of the protests happened. This was before 2016. This was back in 2014. And it was already bad. So the company we work for said, this is probably going to be a safety issue for our employees when we get off work today. So we're letting you go early. And we're sitting around the lunch table. My friend, Dave, who was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, when we were talking about deer hunting. He said, what would you do if you couldn't get out of here? What would you do if you couldn't get out of downtown Kansas City? And then we started talking about bug out bags. One thing led to another. I discovered Jack Spirico and then homesteading and decided I need to grow my own food. My wife was saying, I'm getting tired of boarding a horse. Let's get some land. So we bought 10 acres. I'm in Northeast Kansas here. We have horses. We have two horses, a donkey. We have about 20 chickens. And then little by little, I've grown the gardens and the orchards larger and larger. It's been a challenge because it's all compacted clay. It doesn't have very much organic matter in it. And the garden area was completely dependent on chemicals and took several years to detox that and then get it to the point where this works, this doesn't work. So yeah, that's what I've been working with. What motivates you to grow your own food? So like, okay, so you got out of this city, mm -hmm. you got tired, your wife got tired of boarding a horse. And so you're on 10 acres is pretty sweet. That's a lot. You could do a lot with 10 acres. And right. a lot of it's pasture, some of it's woods. That so you got a good, varied like terrain of sure. um, mm -hmm. good mix. Sounds like. Yeah. So what really inspires me to grow my own food is when you grow your own food, it tastes totally different than it does in the store. My favorite thing to grow is black seeded Simpson lettuce. And this is the cut and come again lettuce. So mm -hmm. it doesn't form a head and you cut it and then you come back in a couple of weeks and then you've got a whole nother gallon of lettuce that you can cut and put in a bag it's very very delicate lettuce it's just great especially when you put like a light vinegar light vinaigrette on it or something like that mm -hmm. and yeah i really that's my that's my favorite thing to grow it doesn't grow too well in the summertime and then i grow tomatoes and things like that and then i grow a lot of apples and try apple grafting <laughs> i experiment i've been trying to get better at grafting apples so we talked briefly about you planting apples and like grafting apples and stuff so are you just planting new apples and like seeing what comes up and like what tastes good or are you taking an existing apple tree and grafting branches from that onto new growth trees yeah. So usually what we do is we get a rootstock. So when you get a, a regular apple tree, it's almost always a grafted tree. So it's grafted onto an onto rootstock. Usually it's a dwarf stock or something. So it doesn't get really big. So I get the rootstock separate and I get the whatever variety of apple I have. My favorite right now is red cinnamon. 
and it actually has cinnamon cinnamon candy overtones and really? um, yeah it's really really good so i get that from 39th parallel nursery which is down the street from me i take those i graft that on and then grow it out for a year and then move it somewhere else and then transplant it another option is that i have one tree that is not resistant to cedar apple rust so it has a hard time so i cut off some of that and then graft other branches onto it so you can technically have five different apple trees types on one tree if you graft it onto an existing tree i think i have seen to take it to the extreme right mm -hmm. there was like some tree that had 40 different kinds of fruit on it or something like that sure. that's insane that, yeah, that one tree could do all that. I mean, obviously not like on its own. It would need a lot, a lot of monitoring and care. Sure. To be able to make that successful. But yeah, you can do that. So I haven't been very successful at grafting. My main problem is, is that apple grafts and apple trees in general do not work with the stun method. You know, the sheer total under neglect, the method that Mark Shepard has. They need to be irrigated like crazy. They need to be fertilized like crazy. I usually put them sort of on the back 40 or something. And then I don't have water back there. A lot of them have failed. Um, you have to water them a lot and I don't always water them a lot. So, you right. know, um, last year, what I did was I hand dug swales and mounds. I went and uh, used an A-frame figured out where the contours were in a corner of my pasture, fenced it off, hand dug the, the swales with a broad fork, took the dirt, put it over into a mound, and then planted the apples into that. That seems to be doing very well because then it's not so much dependent on me going out there and watering it. Right. The land has natural storage of water where sure. it's needed. Yeah. Yeah. Those oh, have done really sense. well both last year and this year. So... I've got some cider apples over there, and then I've got several of the red cinnamon, that, as well as chestnuts in that orchard. Nice. That's pretty sweet. What motivates you about it? You just like it? You just like grafting apples and eating red cinnamon apples and <laughs> yeah. other, other, other fruits? Well, sure. So it's, uh, it, number one, it's resilience. Number two, it's, I like the challenge of trying to figure out whether I can do it and then getting it to work and then i want to have an apple tree there so i can buy the the tree from 39th parallel or i started just messing around and grafting it myself let's talk about some of the methods or techniques that you use so you already talked about swales mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. you that you have swales on your property and that works sure. pretty well for irrigating your trees so you said you had like 20 chickens do you have like a chicken tractor or a chicken run or what, what kind of, how do you manage your chickens? No, I let the chickens run all over the place. We let them out in the morning and they come back in the afternoon and they're pretty much stay on our land and then stay in the certain area of the land. They're not fenced in. Some of them are, but some of the younger ones are fenced in, but the, most of them are not. And then I'll take some of that horse manure, some of that chicken manure, compost it, put it in the garden because we have so much clay, then I use a lot of lasagna gardening techniques, lay down cardboard, 
put compost over the top of it and then uh, you know, amendments and then wood chips and then build a garden bed out that way. Let it sit, go that way to build my garden beds in the ground. So if you let your chickens just run all over the place, do you have to go search for the eggs every day or? So most of the time they will lay them in the chicken house or they'll lay them in the barn. Okay. Um, sometimes they get off and they start laying them somewhere else, but for the most part, that's the two places where they lay them. I let my well, chickens uh, free range for like a couple of weeks. We have a chicken run, and so I just like let the just left the doors wide open, and they seemed happier, but they never laid in the same spot. Uh, mm -hmm. I would like find. I'd be like, "What the heck? There's no eggs." like anywhere. And so I went and searched like a little harder and I found like a dozen eggs laying in one spot. I'm like, all right, sweet. Got them there. And the next day, no eggs. Yep. So I just had to keep hunting. <laughs> we have a lot of sage on the property. Sure. And so they just would find new spots to lay their eggs. I didn't really care for that. I didn't really care for having to find, I know there's like little things you can do, like leave, leave a fake egg in a certain spot. Right. And so that's usually where they'd lay and I just didn't get there. Yeah. I use the fake egg thing. And then, uh, every once in a while we'll find a clutch of eggs in the barn behind some hay that have been sitting there for a long time. And then you have to float them to see if they're still good. Sure. Most of the time they are, they find different ways to go in the hay bales and they are to lay in the hay bales. Since we have fake eggs in the chicken house, they're going back there. Why do you have a donkey? <laughs> because somebody gave it to us for free. <laughs> sounds like a terrible free gift. Do you like it? Yeah, the donkey's awesome. So it's miniature donkey, so it's not full size. It'll keep the dogs off the property. We have dogs on mm. three sides of us. In fact, the dogs just, uh, some dogs came on the property a month ago and killed a bunch of chickens. The donkey will not put up with that. And the donkey's kind of funny, so... What's the donkey's name? Jenny. It's a girl donkey. So <laughs> female donkeys are Jennies and male donkeys are Jacks. So she called That's it funny. Jenny. That's funny. Um, what other, did you say you have other livestock other than the horses, the donkeys and the chickens? Or is that it? Yeah, that's it. That's it. How about your garden? You said you have raised beds mm -hmm. because you have the clay soil. What do you build the raised beds out of? Um, usually I build them out of uh, just pine or whatever cedar from Home Depot. I built a greenhouse out in the backyard out of old windows that the neighbor had donated as well as some windows from the ReStore, which is the recycle store that they have for Habitat for Humanity. Mm -hmm. So I got some of those. I built a greenhouse and that has raised beds in it. I have some raised beds at different parts of the property. The main garden actually has in-ground beds. So I've built the, using lasagna gardening, I've uh, built up the soil there and it's, it's pretty nice. Nice. I still have to add, it's pretty weak in phosphorus. And so I have, I have to bring compost in quite a bit, at least once a year. What do you use for like soil tests to find out your low in phosphorus? Cause I've never done a soil test here. I haven't either. Oh, okay. Some of the ways that things work, it 
my friend Perpin said, oh, yeah, you've got a deficiency in phosphorus. Hmm. So and then I'll either go get some bone meal and mix that in or something like that. Gotcha. You you said that you use horse and chicken manure in your mm -hmm. garden beds. Do you right. age it at all? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, both the chicken manure and the, and the horse manure are too hot to use. The horse manure is too hot to use. I didn't know oh, yeah. that. Yeah. So cow manure, horse manure, all those are too hot to use. You have to let them sit for almost a year. And mm. uh, rabbit manure is about the only thing that you can use immediately. And so I've used rabbit manure from uh, family members and things that uh, raised rabbits. But for the most part, it's mostly just chicken manure and horse manure. I just talked to a guy last week. He puts the chicken manure right on his plants. Like he, I know, I was shocked too, but wow. it works for him and I'm not sure how. So yeah, yeah, I burn things by doing that. So, you know, another thing you really need to watch out for, especially around here is all of the hay fields are sprayed with this stuff called Grazon, which is yes. a herbicide and it passes through the horse, it passes through the cow, and it's persistent for several years. So if you are on Craigslist or whatever, and then you get cow manure from Craigslist, then even if you compost it, it two, three years later can have persistent herbicide in it. And it works for some stuff, but like if you're growing beans, then it'll come up. And because it's designed to kill the broadleaf stuff, and just kill it right off. So I I heard like story after story about that this year alone. That mm -hmm. hey, I I got my compost from this company that they said that was for sure did use pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, whatever. We had a total crop failure. You know, sure. nothing grew, and turns out that the stuff place that their compost came from did end up having grazon on it. And like, they like were like apologetic and blah, blah, blah. But it's like, I literally had zero harvest this year. Thanks. Yep. So I've, yeah. I've had the same thing happen with municipal compost. So I have a couple of places in town, one in one in town and then um, another place that's actually a organic garden center. And, you know, they, their compost comes from municipal sources. There's still too much, Roundup or whatever in it, and then because uh, people are spraying Roundup on the dandelions, and then it ends up in there. I've had beans just up and die. They'll get like they'll come up, they'll get about an inch tall, and then as soon as they start developing that second set of leaves, and they'll die. Wow. So yeah, That's it's it's a really it's a really big problem, and it's hard to find hay that isn't treated with the grazon or some variant. So if I want to use my own horse's manure, then I right. or I get the hay. So basically, if you're driving down the road and you see a hay field and it doesn't have weeds in it, it is sprayed. That's just the way it is. And then to make matters worse, north of us is a hay field and they spray that. Um, I've got a buffer zone with trees, but sometimes if the the wind's blowing right, it'll blow that over onto my land if they're spraying on a certain day. Right. They, they'll say like, oh, if it's a high windy day, we won't spray. Like, yes, yes, you will. You will totally spray because you just want to get the job done. Go to the next. Don't, sure. don't lie. <laughs> they may say, okay, I don't want it blowing this way, but I don't have a problem with blowing on your place. 
Another thing that's a really big problem around here is there is a soybean herbicide that's sprayed that can actually, under certain circumstances, when it gets hot, it can uh, like bubble up, turns into a cloud that comes off the field and then can drift onto your field. What? Yeah. So it's a real big problem in Missouri and Arkansas, which isn't Weird. too terribly from here it's it's really used a lot in missouri and i think arkansas tried to stop its use but it'll just turn into a cloud and under certain heat conditions and then drift onto your land so it's uh like a toxic fog or something i don't know it's so yeah weird. Pretty much, you know? so i don't have any soybean around me i have i have corn around me and then i have hay to the north of me but uh I don't have anything that like that that'll directly drift onto my land. Boy, that that sucks. <laughs> yeah, so some of those things you have to really watch out for and, and have enough buffers with whatever trees you put in either. I don't like putting in cedar trees because of the cedar rust mm -hmm. effect on apples. But, you know, you can also get like a fast-growing tree like ash or buffer tree and then put in a buffer for your permaculture garden and then keep that that kind of thing from drifting onto your land it almost sounds like 10 acres isn't enough <laughs> well my garden's on the edge of it's, it's a long skinny plot of land so sure. you know most of it's pasture for the horses and then the orchard and the garden are on one end or on one side Sure. It just seems like I, that's not something I've had to fight here. I'm only on two and a quarter acres. So it's just not something I've had to deal with. So this, this whole fighting overspray is like a total foreign concept to me. We did an episode back in the spring where we went and did a site survey on a friend's land. And he had a th three acres that were kind of long. And when we started mapping it all out, you get to the point you have to have a certain amount of an easement along the edges. By the time you take that into account and then you take into account, I got to be, I got to watch out for electric and all that. Got to leave space for my septic tank. That eats up three acres pretty fast. Oh, yeah. Everybody's talking about, oh, I grew all of the food I need on a quarter acre. Yeah, you can do that if you really, really plan well and you and you have really good soil. If you don't, then you've got to spread it out a little bit more in three acres. I don't garden three acres, but I have about a 25 foot wide by about 100 foot garden and then another 80 feet of orchard. So it's still a lot of square feet, but oh, you'd, yeah. be surprised, you'd be surprised how much you don't have to grow in there, right? Right, with with everything having its place and whatnot. Sure, with paths and, and, you know, compost piles and things like that. So what's something that you've tried and worked well? It sounds like moving worked really well for you. Chestnuts seem to be working really well for me. Harvesting and foraging the chestnuts and then growing them in tree pots seems to be working pretty well. You can't go and get organic chestnuts from the store. There's a chestnut farm that's a few miles from here. They sell chestnuts at the store. They're organic. So I'm like, okay, they're organic. Obviously they're not sprayed. Well, they are treated so that they can be sold for consumption. So mm -hmm. they're like treated in a hydrogen peroxide solution or something. 
And even though that's organic, you know, it makes them so that very few of them sprout. So that was a hard lesson learned. One of the things that I doing that works surprisingly well is elderberry. So I took elderberry, I take cuttings in the, in February. And if I grow them in pots, then they grow fairly well and under lights. And then I take them outside and it gets too hot too fast and they die. But it's surprising you take a stick of elderberry and you just cut a stick off and stick it in the ground and it takes off and you don't have to do anything. So I have elderberry that I've propagated everywhere just by taking a stick and sticking it in the ground in February and March. Is it thorny? Not elderberry, no. Oh, okay. It's just like, I'm assuming it has just has like kind of like a woody kind of stock to it, like a, mm-hmm. like a raspberry, I guess. Sure. Yeah, it's thicker than that. It Some of them get thicker than your thumb. I just cut those and I have them planted around my apple trees in like an apple guild and they outperform the apples. So I have to keep cutting them back. And when I cut them back, then I take them and I move them around the property and propagate them elsewhere. Hmm. You planted them around the apples. Why? Um, because that's a permaculture guild and, you know, okay. and, and I didn't stuff. know if it was, that's why I was asking. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, you know, the whole idea is you make a guild with a apple in the middle, you put some sort of shrub around the outside and then, you know, the herbal layer and the apples in the middle, elderberries around the side, there's mint down at the bottom, there's horseradish, there's lemon balm, strawberries, and then they all grow up together problem was that the elderberries outperformed the apples because the apples were a dwarf tree and elderberries just went nuts and they got taller than the dwarf apple tree pretty quickly and outperformed it quite a bit. So I keep those trimmed back and then I take them and propagate them elsewhere. Hmm. That sounds kind of cool. How did you find that guild or did you make it like come up with it on your own? I got the idea from a permaculture site. Gotcha. gotcha. So I use the elderberries for medicinal, for colds during the during the wintertime, and I also make elderberry wine out of it. Ooh, is that any good? <laughs> elderberry wine is so funny because elderberries are pretty nasty. I mean, you just, you know, you can't eat them or turn them into jelly or whatever. And uh, so you make elderberry wine. And it is very bitter. And a year later, it still is fairly nasty. I was like, I can't understand why I would even want this. And then I let some sit for another year. And then all of a sudden, at two years, it's good. Hmm. So it mellows out. You can back sweeten it with a little bit of grape juice. It was really good. I took some to some friend's house, and they really liked it, too. That's that's funny. I'm pretty sure I've had elderberry jam or jelly mm-hmm. before but maybe they added so much sugar to it that sure to make it not terrible <laughs> i don't know yeah they're they're pretty bitter i'll make some infusion with in vodka for cough syrup basically for the winter time gotcha that's a good idea so you make elderberry syrup you can either make elderberry syrup by cooking it down and then same same way you're making wine, except you don't put yeast in it. And then you cook it down until it's a syrup. And then I freeze it in freezer bags. And then that is a medicinal to boost your immunity in the wintertime. 
or I'll put the elderberries into vodka and let them sit for a month, drain them out, and then use the vodka as cough medicine or something like that if I get a cold. You're getting a cold all winter. Just keep drinking it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel exactly. a cold coming on. Better drink it. Yeah, exactly. What have you tried that failed or didn't work well? The stun method, definitely. I was like, why are apple trees not working? Well, I don't have water in the back 40. Mm -hmm. And that's where I originally planted apple trees. And, and they were just failing left and right. The swales seemed to work a lot better. I had a really good wet year and then some of the apples took off. And now I, I got apples off of one of those trees for the first time this year. Well it was established an, now. Yeah, it was an Arkansas black uh, apple and it did a good job. So, and those apples store into the wintertime. So they're not really eating out of hand apples, but then when you store them for the winter, then about well, supposedly like December, then they'll get more pleasant or they're also good with cider have you made cider before as a community our small little community of guys we got together last year one of us has a apple cider press and so we got all of our apples and pressed them out and made cider out of it and then we made some hard cider we made some regular cider and experimented with the different apple types to see which were the best and who won <laughs> it wasn't a competition, but it was really good. So, and then we tried some hard cider from previous years. So we did that as a community event. That was really good. One of the things that we've really been working on is forming a community of folks, different farms. So once a month, we call them, no one's an expert, but we're still going to get stuff done. We were in a larger group in Kansas City, but we could never get anybody to do anything because they were all, well, well, we need to get an expert to come and show us how to do this. And then we figured out, well, we're not experts, but we're still going to just have a workshop and we're going to figure it out. One guy had done it once. We were processing chickens because when you have chickens and they're a straight run, you end up with 50 to 60% roosters. Mm -hmm. So we got together and we processed 16 roosters one Saturday. It's something that you don't feel comfortable with unless you do it often. So we just got together, said, hey, one of us has done this before and the rest of us haven't. So we're not an expert, but we're still going to get stuff done. And then we taught each other and processed the chickens. And then we started setting up workshops every month on a specific Saturday, like the second Saturday. And then one of us would volunteer for a topic or couple topics. We made vinegar from scratch, which is, I didn't like vinegar at all, hated vinegar, but I like making vinegar from scratch. I like vinegar from scratch, either from apple cider vinegar, or I make uh, asparagus vinegar, which is really good. Never heard of that. You take asparagus, you put it in the Nutribullet, grind it up, drain it out, and then take the juice and then add honey to it, sugar to it, whatever, and yeast, just like you're fermenting it if you were going to make wine or something, and then add a little bit of a mother from a active vinegar. And it's really light vinegar. I made some um, yellow beet vinegar that was really good. And we did that as an example. And this is how we did it. We did it together. 
we've uh, done Apple graphs together where I got to show the guys how I do graphs and we went through and all did them together. Are you using the vinegar for, are you just drinking it? Are you mixing it with something? Are you like, what are you, what are you doing with this asparagus and beet vinegar? So you can take it and then put it on your salad and it's actually very, very light vinegar. So, and it's kind of got a little bit of sweetness to it. You know, most vinegar that you buy at the store is not made from organic sources. The white vinegar you buy at the store is made out of wood cellulose mm -hmm. for the most part. And most of the apple cider vinegar is just too strong. I don't, I don't like it. But if you make apple scrap vinegar, you can make vinegar out of your scraps, control how much yeast you have in them. And I like to use honey instead of sugar for the fermentation. So they were lighter. They had just a little bit of sweetness to them. Both the beet vinegar and that asparagus vinegar can be used like a vinaigrette. And then I just put an article on Thrive in the Future. It's about two weeks old. It's called Switchel and Vinegar Drinks. You take the vinegar and you can mix it with mixed drinks. You can mix it with soda water, with ginger, with cayenne or whatever else. And that's how people used to drink their drinks back a hundred years ago. You know, it was a, they were called switchels. Weird. Kind of neat. I hated vinegar, but I like making homemade vinegar. Yeah. If, uh, and that probably pairs pretty nicely with that, um, lettuce that you, that you grow. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Especially that homegrown lettuce, homemade vinegar. Right. And the lettuce are just really, really small pieces instead of being like a big hat of lettuce. So sure. it's really good to mix in with that kind of uh, lettuce. What's been your biggest challenge in homesteading? <laughs> my biggest challenge in homesteading is mindset is not getting freaked out by failure. So it's always something. So what worked last year doesn't work this year. I save seed from my tomatoes. Should have worked. Didn't work. So I'm not sure why. None of them. No. I mean, they sprouted. They grew. They never. Some of it had to do with uh, the environment this year. So we got very little rain. It was weirdly hot and then weirdly chilly and then weirdly hot again. And for some reason, they never ripened. They just stayed green. I had a mix of Amish paste tomatoes and pineapple both of which I really like, but they're too different. And for some reason they didn't make a very good cross. So I'm gonna have to try something else. Amish paste seemed to work really well by itself. Didn't work too well when it was cross-pollinated. Gotcha. That might've just been because of, one of the things we talked about is seeds have a memory. And if I buy seeds from on the other side of the country, they're used to that locale. So I bought some seeds from Loft House. And he's really big about making his own land races. So whatever works in his garden, he'll keep it going. And then he'll cross-pollinate it and keep refining it. So I thought that was great. What works in Utah doesn't work in Kansas. That was a big failure this year. And then the deer figured out a way to get over the fence. So they figured out a way to get over the fence and they ate down on my corn, they ate down my beans, they ate down, you know, pretty much everything except the tomatoes. And then the tomatoes failed. So failure is an option. So I'm going to learn some stuff from it and then come back next year and, and put a little bit more 
um, I used cover crop in between the seasons this time instead of bringing in a bunch of amendments. Apparently, I should have brought in some more amendments. So I'm going to do that this year, see what's different. And I'm going to have to repair the fence so the deer can't get over. I made some turnips and some radishes, and they were really, really, really bitter. And I got to figure out what was going on with that. <laughs> what worked last year won't necessarily work this year. Right. And embracing that and then learning from it and going on. That's the fun thing. That's the weird thing every year. Right. Yeah, yeah. What's the best part about homesteading? Having your own food, walking outside, and watering my garden at lunchtime. That would be pretty nice to be able to do that. Just And the Kansas sunsets, Kansas sunsets are pretty amazing. So the sunset tonight was really nice. We've touched on this here and there throughout, throughout this interview, but how do you get over not being an expert in something? Well, most of the people who are experts are experts, self-proclaimed experts, or they're experts somewhere else. What works for Mark Shepard as an expert in Wisconsin doesn't work for me here in Kansas. So him being an expert is nice, but I got to figure out how to make it work here. It's Are like you an work. expert on your 10 acres? I am a above average amateur on my 10 acres. <laughs> there you go. Thank you for listening to the Thriving the Future podcast. If you like what you hear, click that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast app. Also, check us out at thriveinthefuture.com and join our conversation on Twitter at thriveinthefuture or join our Telegram channel. Simply go to the Thriving the Future website. On the right sidebar, there's a link to the Telegram channel. This episode was produced by Scott Miller, copyright 2022, thriveinthefuture.com. Next time on Thrive in the Future podcast. So people fill their whole week with a job. They spend more than they make. They want security over freedom. And they think that life and living will start at retirement. But I want to design and live an intentional life now. Not when I'm really old. Live your days with intention. So it's all about the mindset. And it's time to free your mindset. Do you have a mindset that looks at everything in scarcity or do you look at it in abundance?